everyone, welcome to another installment of Cookie Pocket, joined by Zach and Mitchell as always, and today we will be discussing The Outsiders, a 1983 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, adapted from a novel, which uh, title eludes me at the moment, but uh, yeah, let's see, originally written by S.E. Hinton, ah, the novel's also called The Outsiders, Yeah, hey, I thought that go. was a joke, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> The novel and, uh, of the same yeah, name. a bunch of other people are are involved in this film, including uh, C. Thomas Howell stars as Ponyboy Curtis. We have Matt Dillon as Dallas Winston and Ralph Macchio as Johnny Cade, and a lot of other recognizable names in here like Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Diane Lane. The list goes on. Tom waits for like two seconds. Yes. Zach was very excited about that. Anyway, <laughs> this is a uh, yeah kind of a staple of the 80s but it was the first time uh seeing this for me i don't know about you two but uh i'm trying to bring in more films uh this season that i had not seen yet uh trying to get out of the habit of just rewatching favorites with you guys and and breaking into the the uh the world of arts <laughs> cinema that i haven't it's just floating above my head mm-hmm. but my reflexes are, are too fast now i'm gonna i'm gonna catch the cinema um oh dear so, uh, general thoughts and ratings out of five from each of you, please. Uh, well, I gave this a four. Um, although, if I gave half ratings, I probably would have given it a three out of, out of five. Uh, or, or sorry, a three and a half out of five. Um, I feel comfortable with the, with the four rating, and I do think that this is a, a really solid film. But throughout a lot of it, I was kind of sitting on that three uh, I think Francis Ford Coppola, or, or Francis Coppola, as he goes by in the opening credits of this film. In the 80s, he dropped the forward for a while. I'm not sure why. Hmm. Um, I think he really hit kind of a goldmine of casting with this film. Because basically, everybody who appears as... Uh, not, not a hood. As a greaser. Um, or a, a, and a couple <laughs> of the socias, even. Uh, they've, they've gone on to be uh, pretty major stars in, in the decades afterward. Uh, there are a couple who have kind of fallen through the cracks to just sort of character stardom, but most of these people are, are major names still. Um, unfortunately, I think a few that the narrative really hangs on are probably the weakest. Um, I think C. Thomas Howell and maybe Diane Lane, although Diane Lane doesn't have as much screen time, but I think C. Thomas Howell, despite being the lead, delivers probably the weakest performance in this film um he's great physically uh and he's he's very charismatic when all he has to do is just kind of like swagger around and sit in a location uh there's a great shot in the hospital lobby when they're waiting to hear what happened to johnny and, and how johnny's doing uh with his with his burns after he's caught in a burning church um, and he's just kind of leaning back against the bench, and he takes out his lighter and flicks it open and lights a cigarette and closes it again and puts it in his pocket. And and in a moment like that, he, he embodies, like, John Travolta in Blowout or something like that. He, he really captures that movie star energy. But when he has to deliver lines, he, Ralph Macchio, Diane Lane, they're, they're pretty stiff. And when these are the actors who are carrying most of the dialogue, um, it does get to a certain point where the eye was kind of wincing a little bit with some of the dialogue um especially since a lot of this dialogue is taken from a book that is although mature writing for children still writing for children when you take that writing and that dialogue and you have it delivered in kind of a stilted manner 
it really comes across as flat when it doesn't work. Um, but that said, there are plenty of other performers who really make it work. I think Matt Dillon is kind of one of the standouts. Uh, Christian, you had pointed out that he's kind of the, the heart of this film, and I do agree with that. Uh, and I think where this film won me over to a four out of five instead of a three was the last third with the rumble and Matt Dillon's face off with the law. That was the stuff that really convinced me of the four. Um, that in combination with the the visual stylings, which I think visually this film looks great. Um, there's a neat little pocket in the middle where it kind of takes on the look and feel of Gone with the Wind for a little while to kind of reflect... Uh, hmm. Pony Boy and uh, uh, Johnny, Johnny reading Cape. the book. Um, there's also I love I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good split diopter shot, and this movie has like <laughs> a dozen of those. Um, some of them like back to back to wow. back. Um, so yeah, it's worth checking out. It, it's in the top half of my Coppola rankings right now, but certainly nowhere near either of the Godfathers or uh, Apocalypse Now, which we watched uh, last season, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the Matt Dillon, I think that was my favorite scene at the end. And I, I have to agree with both of you on that because we don't disagree on this pod without. <laughs> we always are apt on, like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, no, I disagree, Zach. I don't think those split diopter shots, whatever they're called, are, are good. I think they're terrible. Um,. Yeah, I gave this a three and a half out of five. I think the the most frustrating thing was it was the style. Hmm. It was the style. I think I think the I feel like there's a lot of really good messaging with especially with C. Thomas Howell's character, and I, I also think I agree that he was like one of the weakest performances considering he was so out there. I mean, really, he just doesn't have that good of a range, I guess, because I just saw Red Dawn um last night and he basically had the same amount of emotional range if not more actually because a lot of more terrible things happened to him in that movie than in this one which is interesting um but yeah i think i don't know i just it, it, it's not like i have a problem with the style inherently or the way that it was shot because i think there was so many creative shots in this that made each scene memorable beyond the the dialogue and i felt like the the events that were happening to them spoke for themselves and i feel like coppola really let that you know simmer he let he let every scene simmer i feel like it, it didn't and no no none of the dialogue felt like it was like wholly unnecessary or it was like overshooting the the greaser versus uh so rivalry too much and I, I commented on that in my review that i thought that the rivalry the way it like was brewing and like the like the necessary fear that you have um, trying to avoid them and avoid the law and everything. I certainly felt that, but um, I mean, I, I completely agree pretty much with all the positives that you both said. I think that it's it, it really felt like a, a naturally occurring story. It didn't feel like there was like a one thing after another kind of thing. I guess the most you could argue for that is the church mm -hmm. scene, um, and I, I guess that kind of felt the most like haphazardly inserted, I guess. It kind of just like they kind of just decided that there was a church burning in it. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what it felt like initially. Um, but yeah, I think the naturalistic way that the plot went where it felt spontaneous to the point where it was still kind of believable. And then it was teaching them uh, of like a lot of lessons about leaving and, and 
you know, uh, how much camaraderie can like help you through tough times, even when you're like have camaraderie with like not terrible people, but like I guess younger kids that are getting into bad stuff. I sound like a politician tonight, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I like the story. I just I, I couldn't get over how aggressive like the style was and the smoking and like the accents and everything and i guess it's a part of the aesthetic and it kind of lends to its originality but at the same time it's just like that brat pack thing really gets to me after a while and i just i felt like the story it was trying to tell kind of grew out of that like limited shell that it was in for the entire runtime hmm fair enough i landed on a four for this one excuse me i do half star ratings all the time. Uh, I, I think I have more three and a half star ratings than I do. No, it's it's close. I barely have more four star ratings than three and a half star total. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I really love this film more than I thought I would. And I, I will echo what, what Zach said about uh, C. Thomas Howell, though I don't think... I think that Coppola is aware of his limitations. I don't think he's asked to do too much mm-hmm. uh, emotionally or, or even in terms of line delivery. I think a lot of it kind of falls on Diane Lane and I think she kind of picks up his slack and there, and there are one-on-one conversations. And then uh, like we've said uh, in the last third, when, when Matt Dillon kind of becomes the focus, I think that uh, makes up for a lot as well. Um, and I, I will offer a, a partial defense of, of uh, Johnny Cade, um, uh, Ralph Macchio, Macchio, I'm not sure how to say that last name, but uh, I think every scene he has when he's uh, in the hospital bed is pretty harrowing. Um, he gets a lot I, better I, when he's in hospital, I think. Um, yeah, he actually does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After that halfway point, that first scene with him in hospital and the bandages, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I maybe I won't include him by name as one of my me- weaker actors in my review, um, because I do agree with you, the hospital stuff is effective. Yeah. I also think right after he stabs the the sock and he's kind of freaking out, I think that was really well played too. And uh, a big challenge, especially when you cut uh, basically straight from him, like brandishing the blade to after the, after it's happened. Um, That's, that's a hard thing to act. Um, And this is only 91 minutes long and I think it covers a ton of ground. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've cited how huge this ensemble is and, and all of these complicated uh, interpersonal dynamics we've because we've got this with this brother group with uh, pony boy and um, soda pop and, and Daryl and then we obviously have the the gang rivalry or, or whatever it is um, it definitely I think inspires like an obvious uh, comparison to West Side Story mm-hmm. uh, except West Side Story is like almost twice as long yeah. and I don't think <laughs> I, I love that film but I don't think it really covers those uh, I mean, there's there's more like racial uh, stuff at play, which which might merit more examination than than uh, two two rival uh, class gangs. But um, I just think it covers a ton of ground in 91 minutes and and adapting a novel uh, in that length. Um, when it was over, I was like, was that two hours? Because I had thought going into it that it would be two hours, but it, it wasn't. Obviously, um, no, I don't know. I don't have a lot of complaints. I I worry a lot about ways that it could be dated. Um, and in in the dialogue, and like in the uh, in the opening credits when they when they show the, the names and then it like 
PowerPoint presentation transitions until like, <laughs> <laughs> scrolls down. I was kind of like, oh, oh boy, here we go. But uh, no, I think I think most of it played as sincere instead of uh, corny to me. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that's just my take on it. But uh, Francis Ford Coppola is no stranger to nepotism. Mm. Um, he's cast mm-hmm. uh, Sofia Coppola in the uh, pivotal role of little girl in this film. Um, and also, uh, Carmine Coppola has, uh, was the composer for this film. Uh, what did you all make of the score? So, um, I know that Coppola, Coppola later did a, a, a re-edit of this film, or like an extended edition, which is called The Outsider's The Complete Novel, I think. And hmm. in a companion documentary to that version, he says that he thought that, um... Carmine Coppola's score to the original version was a, a bit too sweeping and romantic, and he was afraid afraid to say so because it was a score made by his father. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I don't really think that it's uh, too over the top for the film. It is this sort of sweeping romantic score, but I think um, I think what makes it work is the Gone with the Wind segment in the middle. And I think the the recurring focus on Gone with the Wind and the idea that these kids sort of see their lives as this kind of grand romantic drama, uh, even if they do have a lot of struggles and even if they do um, have a tough time of it, um, I think that they still, this has kind of become a cliche in, with social media, but I do think that they still kind of see themselves as the main characters of this grand dramatic adventure and so for that kind of thing i think that the um the coppola score is great and and really fits and i i haven't heard the score for the re-edits so i can't really speak to that one uh but yeah i i think the sweeping romantic thing works just fine the musical aspect that i do think dates a little bit um and not because it's bad but just because it's so immediately recognizable as like oh this is an 80s movie is the uh stevie wonder uh single um, yeah. Which is a good song. I, I really like Stevie Wonder um, <laughs> up to a point. However, there, there are a couple bad Stevie Wonder albums um, and a couple bad Stevie Wonder songs. Jungle Fever. Ugh. But um, I mean, Stay Gold is a good song. But I think just the 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 sort of synth Stevie Wonder style, the direct reference to a line from the film as the title of the song. That's very mm-hmm. 80s. I think opening and closing with that kind of. Uh, drags it down for me more than any aspect of the score does. Yeah, I would guess. I guess so too. I kind of forgot like halfway in the movie that that was even in the beginning, and that they played at the end as I well. I think they did. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, "All oh, right." I remember when the movie started an hour and a half ago. Um, yeah, that fell out of place the most. I think. I think the melodrama that like is overall trying to be achieved. I guess it works in that place, but I guess the issues I already mentioned, and then especially with the the range of the actors, I think that was the the biggest issue for me. I felt like it might have been trying to reach too high emotional heights when it didn't need to. Um, but for the most part, I didn't find it distracting. I feel like it, it fit enough. I mean, I can't like recall any specific parts. I guess the rumble might have been the best part for me i feel like that might have been pretty like recognizable mm. um 
but yeah, I think it was pretty appropriate. I think I don't I don't really have any complaints about it. Oof. Okay, before I answer the question I posed, I'm I'm glancing at the Wikipedia and I'm about to burst into tears because Val Kilmer <laughs> was approached to play Pony Boy, but he turned it down as he was prepping a Broadway play Slab Boys. I, I saw that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rip. I think. I did see that, and I was like, Christian is going to make a point of this, because Christian is in a bit of a, <laughs> a, a Kilmer craze at the moment. Indeed. Um, I, even though I don't love C. Thomas Howell, I don't know if any era of Val Kilmer can embody the kind of clumsy adolescent bravery that C. Thomas Howell shows here. I think Val Kilmer is just too confident for that. Because um, even when Val Kilmer, and I'm obviously evaluating based on adult Val Kilmer, because I haven't seen any child performances from Val Kilmer, I don't believe. But Val Kilmer, even when he's playing like an awful person or a coward or somebody that we as the audience really shouldn't like, he's always got that swagger. And, and I think Ponyboy has to have that swagger, but you always have to be aware that that's like a veneer and he's secretly like terrified as all kids kind of are. Mm. And I don't know if Kilmer could have done that. Um, that's a real tangent that just came up off of a Wikipedia article, but I, I wanted to no. throw that in cause I did read that too, Christian. No, that's a good point. I mean, Top Gun was, was only three years after this. So oh, it's, wow. it's, yeah, it's hard to imagine him being much, uh, much more of an, of an adolescent t- uh, type performer. Um, I, I thought I would take issue with the score, uh, cycling back. Um, I really did. And I've said, I mean, in our recent episode, Angel Heart, I think I said something about the synth score yeah. uh, d- dating dramatic moments for me. But uh, I, I pretty much completely agree with what you said, Zach. I think the Stevie Wonder song is a little distracting, but otherwise I think the the, the Coppola score um, throughout works really, really well. Um, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, what else do I want to say? I don't know. Who is your favorite outsider? <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, that's the, the, We're going back to season one. <laughs> Aren't we all outsiders? character. Ooh. Yes, or favorite performer, or just talk about someone, anyone, please. Rob Lowe coming out of the shower <laughs> is my favorite outsider. That's one of the... Said someone on Letterboxd. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, who... I mean, a lot of the, outside of kind of the main four, which are Johnny, Ponyboy, uh, Dallas, and Diane Keaton, um, the rest of them don't get a ton of screen time. Like, Tom Cruise is in this, but he mostly Mm -hmm. just says, like, a couple of lines while a bunch of other people are speaking and does a backflip. Like, it's not like a, a lot of the other, you know, outsiders, the guys on the poster... They don't really have a ton of opportunity to show off, really. Um, I think in terms of a character that really sticks out as being distinct and not just, you know, an opportunity for a young up-and-coming actor to hoot and holler around on screen for a little while, uh, I think Patrick Swayze's character... um, Oh, I forget his name. Um, Daryl Curtis. Daryl. I think that's a really interesting character. Uh, because he kind of represents, um, he's sort of like one of the lost boys who's who's realized, okay, one of us has to grow up eventually. Um, and so he's this, 
he's still this kid who like gets into fights and doesn't really know how to look after the home uh, and, and he's still like this young man who has no idea what he's doing really but he's the one who's had some awareness of like okay we have to like cook and i have to like look after you guys and make sure the child protective services doesn't come like one of us has to be in charge and be the grown-up here and i think that's a really interesting dynamic um because he becomes like this like accidental reluctant father um father figure to not just his own brothers but to kind of the rest of the gang and he, it, that's never really something that's really focused on. We don't see a ton of that, even though um, I think the most we probably get is when he uh, he hits uh, Pony Boy, um, and we later see him like apologizing for that and his reaction to that. Um, but I, I think that just that really kind of throws a spike into the dynamics of any scene that that he's in when other people around, uh, when other people are around, because if all the outsiders are the same then it's it's just like they're just like gremlins um but throwing one in there that's like okay guys don't eat like all the cake and the beer for breakfast okay um that leads to conflict and actual scenes and i think that's interesting dallas supremacy <laughs> yeah i think i just it's hard to get over the how many cliches that he hit on in the very beginning by hitting on someone <laughs> but i think that it's interesting that he stayed the same like he he was such a static character but we learned more about him as it went on and i feel like that mm. is the reason why he had such an interesting dynamic because it's a coming of age film but in a lot of ways you basically feel like he's already come of age the whole time and even though he's learning new things and like gaining new experiences the way that he's reacting to them changes and based on like how involved the kids are in it and like how emotionally distressing it is, I guess. So like really I was not, I was, I would have been totally expecting him just to stay in the car during the church scene because of what we saw before, but then seeing him be more involved in it, then I'm like, wait, I totally got caught off guard. I guess I should have seen that he would be as, like protective of them like he was already guiding them and showing them how they can escape the authorities and it's just cool to see that dynamic and then obviously his like ultimate sacrifice in the end kind of just puts a, a fine point on it so um that's the only character i feel like that's like significantly dynamic enough where every time he came on the screen i was like i definitely want to see more of him i want to see like what the next scenario brings and it's interesting that i found that a lot more with him than i did with um Johnny and Pony Boy because they're they're supposed to be the ones that were supposed to be like empathizing with the most. So mm -hmm. um not to say that I didn't, but you know. Yeah. I, I think our ages also kind of impact that. Um yeah. I think there's a reason I feel this no novel gets assigned <laughs> to like sixth and seventh grade a lot. Um or at least it did at the, the school, the middle school that I went to. Um there were English classes ahead of me that, that read The Outsiders and watched the film. Uh, and I think the reason it gets assigned to that age group is because when you're around that age, you're around the age of Pony Boy and Johnny, um, and maybe can kind of relate to their struggles and wanting to be like the big kids a little more. Um, whereas we have become the big kids who get into 
shootouts with the police. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe not that <laughs> big, but that's, that's the, the age like? group of the characters. I think maybe, at least for me, that we're more inclined to relate to. Uh, is I, I look at this film and I see more of myself in a character like Dallas or um, uh, uh, Emilio Estevez. I mean, not that much Emilio Estevez, but kind of that age group, I think, are a little more relatable maybe to people our age. These these guys who are, uh, you know, they're out looking for, for jobs and they don't have a ton of money, but they know they got to make money. Um, but you know, I kind of don't want to go to work. Like, I mean, what, what was so wrong about not having a job? You know, why can't I be a kid again? That, that kind of like push and pull, I think is maybe something assigned to the supporting characters here. And maybe we've become the supporting characters as we've grown up, we've grown older. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Got my bachelor's degree now, man. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, Matt Dillon Supremacy, uh, Cookie Pocket alumnus, <laughs> by the way. Uh, That's right. Star in, in uh, Beautiful Girls, which we discussed two, one season, two seasons ago. Uh, yeah, that was season I two. I remember that. Yeah. Um, he's definitely my favorite, but uh, there's a throwaway line about Daryl that I just wanted to, to uh, draw attention to. I think, I can't remember if, if Pony Boy or Soda Pop says it, but uh, one of them says it to the other, and... Um, they say uh, something like, you know, if it wasn't for us, uh, Daryl would probably be a sock. And that's kind of like <laughs> all they needed to say. Um, yeah. And it's it's like towards the end of the scene, and I don't even think it's that prominent in the sound mix or anything, but I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, no, yeah, Matt Dillon's just awesome. And I love how uh, Tom Cruise is just like inexplicably eating chocolate cake the entire time. He, he always has and, something on his face. <laughs> yeah, he's just munching on on something and uh, says very little. He's just kind of there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's also like jumping around, like slapping you and laughing. Yeah. And <laughs> has that weird look on his face. Yeah. I think this is before the the tooth procedure. Too. Yes. This is pre braces so. Tom Cruise. So oh he's, yeah, yeah. He's just a hooligan. That's. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna go get him. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> he's like that in every movie. Yeah. He's gonna do it again in Mission Impossible. Oh boy. Oh, I hope so. That would be great. I welcome that. <laughs> uh, was Matt Dillon right, or was was Dallas right when he was like? <laughs> Matt Dillon was right. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you, what, I don't remember how he says it, but something along the lines of, "You do good, and and you get you get nothing for it, or or something like that." What do you make of his nihilism? Hmm. English class time. I. <laughs> I'm gonna say, because uh, I, I think I have a lot of cynicism in this department as well, <laughs> that <laughs> doing good for good's sake, uh, doesn't get you anywhere um when you're doing that alone um i think especially when you're in a situation i think the situation of the outsiders in this book um is meant to be they're like stuck in a hole um and no matter what they do no matter the good things they do and the people they try to help even if they're hailed as heroes in the paper they're always going to be in that hole and they're not going to be able to to climb out if they focus just on doing good things. And at some point, if you're stuck in a hole, you got to be start being kind of ruthless 
and working for yourself to find your way out of that hole, um, which I think you could argue is is why he ends up in his, his eventual gunfight at the end, as he kind of resorts to that conclusion uh, in a very chaotic way. Um, and I, I do think that that's sort of true in reality as well. Um, can doing good things and just helpful things get you somewhere? Um, in our modern world, I, I think that they can. But I think when that happens, it's more luck than it is the rule. Um, if you dedicate your life to charity and helping others, that's all very good. But a lot of the time, those people that you're helping are not going to help you in return. Uh, you're going to have to help yourself as well along the way and use that momentum to help others as you go. Um, Nietzsche told me that. <laughs> 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 well, I'll tell you a, a better philosophical authority than Nietzsche, oh. Zach. Besides Marcus Aurelius, it's the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts slogan is, do a good turn daily. And I think that's a great motto, slogan thing for children. Because as you grow older, you realize that you have to make decisions as you gain more responsibility and I feel like attempting to be good and do good things is fruitless because you have to attempt and do good things by doing things that you enjoy doing things that help other people naturally so like I've never heard of anybody like saying the reason why they do charity or they do volunteer work is because they're trying to do good things it's always like a self like professed reason like they always have their own personal reason for doing something mm -hmm. and i feel like in the context of the film that works really well um it's easier to tell kids like just do good things and be nice to people and say your p's and q's you know don't put your elbows on the table and don't watch tiktok at the table either <laughs> but at the same time it's nice to or just don't watch tiktok at all but <laughs> Um, I think, I think the good thing with Dallas is that he was doing things out of his own volition and it, maybe it was because of the way that he, he was raised, but I feel like in this context that Coppola sets up, I feel like it's the condition that he's in being in a lower class and being a part of this ragtag team of greasy people. I feel like that is like, he, he naturally was inclined to help his fellow brothers and, um, you know, just do whatever they're doing, even if it's, you know, good or bad. And I think over that experience, I feel like experience is what's going to teach him. So I agree with what he said. And I think that it's, it's really, it, it puts a fine point on the, the coming of age part, because some things for a kid, you're like, just do nice things, do good things. Then you're going to grow into it, make bad decisions and then learn from them. For Dallas, he's still, like coming into that like he's still making bad decisions and he's still in this like you know this hole he can't get out of like you said zach and i think in this case it's just better to react to your environment in in the way that's conducive to everyone else in addition to yourself and i feel like being a greaser does help you have that camaraderie and encourage those good things eventually it just takes time and experience and obviously with the kids like the stabbing and stuff that was like the first major like wake up call mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm i'm also gonna throw my boy scout credentials on the table here 
<laughs> because the Boy Scouts slogan might be do a good turn daily, but the motto is be prepared. So I think even uh, a, a pillar of virtue like the Boy Scouts acknowledges that, yes, do good things, but also look out for number one. That was good, Zach. That was really that good. That was really good. <laughs> Don't forget about loyalty. No, never a scout is trustworthy, <laughs> loyal, scout, helpful, loyal, helpful, friendly, friendly courteous, courteous, kind, kind obedient, cheerful. Oh, jeez. We are Americans. <laughs> In Red Dawn, they call the Boy Scouts a fascist, like, combat <laughs> thing or something. <laughs> Special forces. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I have much to add to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's about generational trauma. But it is, though. And, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's like the cycle of, of neglect and... Uh, I think I think maybe maybe Daryl will be the first to break it mm-hmm. um, when they reconcile. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know who knows? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a touching story. Any closing thoughts? Uh, I'm really interested to see Rumblefish now. Me too. Because um, that that uh, I think Matt Dillon is like the full on star of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also uh, uh, Mickey Rourke is in that one. Cookie Pocket alum Mickey Rourke. Um, <laughs> and I'm also just really intrigued to see uh, how that differs visually to the outsiders. Um, yeah. Because this is a very colorful, uh, kind of flashy, stylistic film. It's in uh, 2.35 to 1, like a scope ratio. But Rumblefish, is it, it's in black and white. Um, I have heard that it's a lot more kind of nailed down in an almost like French New Wave-esque. Um, so I'm, I'm very intrigued to kind of see those back-to-back and how one kind of gives and takes with the other as as companion films. Um, yeah, I would certainly recommend The Outsiders. Um, I think uh, a common sense media is full of parents saying, I can't believe they made my children watch this in school. It's so violent. <laughs> but I think if you're like 14, 15... Uh, like early teens yeah, maybe on. even late preteens yeah. i i think that this mm. is like a, a fine film for that for that age group um and is i think you'll definitely relate to the struggles of the main characters or at least have some empathy for them in a way that maybe we uh we old fuddy-duddies aren't quite as directly capable of <laughs> mm-hmm. put down your jewel and start reading gone with the wind <laughs> tired of you kids <laughs> Um, yeah, but you can smoke. That's okay. I mean, but not more yeah, than a pack. There was one. Yeah, yeah. Wait until you're older and you're good. Um, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with all that. I agree with it. It's I fine. It's fine. I agree. I agree. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a good like if you're if you're good with that aesthetic and if you're if you're like uh you're delving into coppola at the same rate that i am which is sometimes very fast and sometimes very slow then and you like you like coppola but don't like sheen <laughs> if, if martin sheen isn't in it well his son is in it yeah emilio yeah. estevez <laughs> yeah well he's good he's good whatever <laughs> yeah oh, yeah i think it's fun i like it and I think it's a good coming-of-age story. I think it definitely comes across as a film that was for younger age groups. Um, and I'm just a boomer, I guess. <laughs> That's why I gave it a three and a half. Yeah. 
I give it a four. I, I think it's a, uh, I don't know. It, it exceeded expectations for me. And uh, Zach already mentioned this, but I just want to echo again how well choreographed the, the, the rumble is. I got really nervous um, when, mm-hmm. when the two gangs were facing each other and I was going to be like, I was worried was in like 30 seconds it would all look ridiculous and just kind of dissolve, but it's, it's really well choreographed and dirty and, and um, um, it, it feels like pun- real punches are being thrown and, and um, there's this tension of like Daryl always like looking over his shoulder to make sure uh, Pony Boy and Soda Pop aren't getting destroyed by mm-hmm. someone big and um, yeah, just, just a great scene there. Uh, yeah, so that's The Outsiders. Shall we review our weeks? Sure. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, first. speaking of Tom Waits. Oh, oh, Mitchell has his hand up. Mitchell, would you like to go first? <laughs> <laughs> this is my, I want to go first. Okay, I, I don't know, it might be. It's, it's, it's the I Apple go emoji first, of like the No, go Zach, oh, okay. roll. Well, well, speaking of Tom Waits, um, who makes a very brief appearance in this film, because Coppola kept giving him cameos after he did the score for uh, One from the Heart, um... I am on a, on a Tom Waits streak right now uh, for discography listens, and today I listened to The Black Rider, uh, which came out, I think, in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s. Um, and last time I talked about Tom Waits, I talked about his debut, where he's much more kind of classical blues piano. He's kind of got a gruff voice, but he, he very much kind of embodies that, that late-night bar crooner. Uh, this is not that... This is um, Tom Waits Gone Weirdo, um, which is a lot of fun. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's a little too weird. But this one really works for me. Uh, This he made as the soundtrack to a play, uh, which was written by William S. Burroughs, which if you know anything about Burroughs, that's like a weirdo match made in heaven. Uh, This is like clearly inspired by like uh, German Expressionism, and summons like the sounds of of a carnival and it there's constant like hurdy-gurdy and weird accordion um and it's a a real concept album that follows the plot of the play as the soundtrack to any musical would uh and the plot here is really simple and kind of autobiographical on william s burroughs account it's about uh a poor peasant uh, who is in love with a more wealthy woman and so he makes a bargain with the devil, um, and the devil gives him a gun that will shoot and kill anything that he desires, but there's one bullet in that gun that the devil controls what that shoots, um, and I'll leave you to assume where that bullet ends up. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun, and Waits is doing voices for, like, Satan and all of the different characters in the play, and I I had a riot with it. I said in my Twitter thoughts that if I had discovered this as a semi-reluctant theater kid in high school, it would have totally blown my mind. Um, (laughs) I I really enjoyed it. I don't think it's perfect, but it's probably one of my favorite Waits albums so far. Uh, Four out of five, I liked a lot more than I thought I was going going to based on Waits' last album, Bone Machine, which was one of the first ones in a while that I was like, eh... It wasn't that great, but the Black Rider, real recommend. Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, I'm looking at my dog, <laughs> and she wants me to do Knock at the Cabin. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's Charlie. <laughs> you guys are like, Hi, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Okay. 
See, now our our, our uh, listening ship just gained like 50 people. Yeah, there was a dog. Um, <laughs> there was a dog. Uh, yeah, knock at the cabin. Um, it's y'all's favorite director, especially Christians, um, Shyamalama. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalama, the, uh, the creator of the first live-action um, Avatar, the last airbender adaptation known as the last airbender um and i think uh knock at the cabin was okay it was all right it didn't really come across as a Shyamalan film in a way where the story felt oriented to the dialogue and i think that that's kind of a major problem for a lot of people is that a lot of his dialogue feels very like chat gpt and it's very it, there's just like an air about it that sounds like it's unnatural to the point where it's it, it, like even if the actors are good it still doesn't feel like it in place and i made the argument for like unbreakable and split are like my two first ones and even the sixth sense that i feel like that awkwardness kind of fits the story and fits like the scenarios the characters are in it does in this case um it's kind of about these four people in the woods that come to a cabin and there's a gay couple and um their adopted kid there and they kind of have to explain to them this scenario that they're all involved in and they have to kind of get out of that scenario. And I think it's a great premise. I feel like the casting was literally perfect. Um, he does Drax better than he does Drax. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I got to say. I feel like, and, and there are some really creative camera angles, especially in the beginning, that really build tension. And I feel like Shyamalan's been consistently good with that, but... Um, yeah, Dave Bautista sticks out to me, and I was trying to look up uh, Rupert Grint's in it, mm -hmm. and everyone's <laughs> mentioning how he's like a homophobe in it, and that's ironic because Harry Potter and stuff. But um, <laughs> the best Shyamalan cameo, I'll say. Uh, and then Abby Quinn as Adrian, I thought was especially good. Um, she was very awkward, and she came across really well. And it's very obvious it's a book adaptation, and I just I don't think Shyamalan really needed to direct this. I feel like this just doesn't appeal to his directing style as much and it's not necessarily because of the way the third act comes out it's more of like i just wish that he had just come up with his own story that was in the same like a similar scenario and and a lot of it has to do with doomsday stuff and like the end of the world and i feel like there's a lot of different ways he could have gone about it instead of just adapting the story and and um apparently he took a lot of creative liberties in the last mm -hmm. act um to make it spin more like a Shyamalan film, and I do not think it worked. I felt like I was literally being spoken to at the very end, um, and that's the most I've ever felt from a Shyamalan film, where I was literally having everything explained to me, like I didn't watch it already, and to just watch the film, like you know, <laughs> it's an hour and a half. I think I'm pretty sure it's an hour and a half. So it was a pretty brisk, brisk going. I thought literally everybody was casted great. It's a very tightly knit cast, and I really, I really agreed with that decision. Um, I gave it a three. And I think I think it's worth checking out at all if you're a Shyamalan fan. And and his his his, I would say the cinematography is the most like recognizable thing for me. And um, the awkwardness of the characters. But you know, I I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. If you don't like Shyamalan already, I don't think you're gonna like mm. it. But yeah, sounds like I won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I'm going to try to keep it current here and talk about everyone's favorite leading performer, Ezra Miller, oh, in boy. The Flash. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, my God. 
2023. Though it's been in <laughs> development, I think for like 20 years, maybe. I think, I think longer. Literally, yeah. yeah. Um, boy, this was a doozy, and I really got sucked into the hype train on this one when uh, Stephen King called it one of the greatest superhero movies ever made, and then like somebody said. Tom Cruise requested to watch it early and loved it, and then James Gunn was hyping it, and I really I was drinking the Kool Aid, guys. Mm-hmm. I was I was so ready to to love the Flash. Um, I gave it a two and a half, but in retrospect, I think that was pretty generous um, because that that gives it oh. that gives it equal footing with with stuff like um, Doctor Strange in the Weird World, which I think Zach will discuss if not today then soon soon um yeah i'm a little yeah. bit ahead on marvelous cinematour but mm-hmm. yeah soon um you really need to enjoy um ezra miller's performance a lot to to like the film and uh not even weighing the real world accusations or whatever i've just never been a big ezra miller person the comedy is is fine, but it it wears on me after a while, and um, it's it's not even that it annoys me. It just doesn't really entertain me that much either. Um, my biggest uh, uh, criticism for this is not even um, multiverse plot nonsense, of which there is plenty, um, <laughs> as as is par for the course now for this stuff. Please end it. But. Uh, just when the flash runs it just looks so stupid it it doesn't look cool <laughs> but it's supposed to be comic booky no, christian it come doesn't on look comic booky it, it was intentional I, I saw i've seen spider-verse i know what comic booky is supposed to look like <laughs> <laughs> it just looks bad get out of my face with <laughs> that he's doing like this weird like thing with his arms where he's like waving in front of himself <laughs> and there's this one scene where um spoiler he like loses his powers for a stretch and then he's like running around the room doing his weird little arm thing at like a normal speed <laughs> And it just, and it's played for laughs because it looks ridiculous. But then when he actually has his powers, it's it still looks that bad, and it's not played for laughs. And um, I just I, I think about like the Quicksilver, Evan Peters Quicksilver, and um, the I don't know if he's in First Class, but um, in, in those semi recent X Men films, how he has these super cool sequences where everything just slows down, and he's just like awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Nothing in this even like remotely approaches that level of of coolness, um, but uh, Keaton is like fine, I guess. I don't know. I don't have much to say. Um, um, Sasha Cal as Supergirl was was awesome. She was great, and I hope I hope they keep her um, for uh, for uh, for uh, James Gunn's uh, world. Mm. Uh, uh, James Gunn's work. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how else. <laughs> Multiverse, whatever, man. Um, JG. Yeah. Michael Shannon is great. He's always great, but they don't ask him to do anything other than basically reenact Man of Steel, and he has like no screen time, so it's just like annoying. Um, and then there's just some really dubious uh, uh, CG cameos in here. Um, and if you want to read it up on those, just Google it, I guess. But I mean, geez, okay. man. Um, and I mean, there's a, there's a lot to criticize, but but I I, I kind of take a step back and and even like enjoying little moments of it. I, the hardest thing for me to get around is that the Flash doesn't have the star power for his own film without having multiple Batman and a Kryptonian sharing the bill with him, um, you know. And that's just gonna limit your movie a lot, and it doesn't look good, like visually. 
So, I mean, whatever, two and a half, it's probably more of a two. I would understand if you gave it even a one, honestly. Um, I was sad. I was excited to see it. But, uh, yeah, that's on me, I guess. <laughs> what? Okay, these are very dubious. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just do let's just do everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> also there are some yeah. weird lines. Like Barry <laughs> Allen has some lines where he like like references kidnapping and then there's like one scene where, where fans are like they see the flash and they're like, Oh my god, it's the flash and then Ezra Miller's like, Hi and then one of them's like, I love you and he's like, Thanks and then I'm just thinking of him like choking the fan in yeah. the convenience yeah. store. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There are like at least a few instances where it's just like, wow, this really, this is really, this is just like when he did that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, that's, yeah. I think the thing for me that has, and I was never going to be interested in The Flash, but the thing for me that has made me go, yeah, I don't think this is a good movie at all, is anytime anybody seems to be describing something they liked in the film or why the film is actually good that takes the form of them basically just beat for beat recalling certain scenes and jokes. And for me, that's usually the mark of a film that isn't very good when you can't like speak to its quality at all without, or you can't even speak to its quality. All you can do is just recount jokes that you liked. Um, That's usually not a good sign in my experience. And when I was talking about it with my parents who I saw this with, um, most of the things they said in defense of it were like, when they played the theme song from Burton's Batman, that was so cool. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it, it was cool. It's also from another movie. So I can't like give this credit for copying and pasting that, that you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like I sound like a jerk, but you know, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christian hates his parents. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> hey, hey, I, I put tags in my letterbox. I keep track of who I watch films with and the top four, uh, people I watch the most movies with. Um, fourth place is Mom. <laughs> Third place is Zach. Second place is Mitchell. Mitchell is Zach beat by one film. And first place is Dad. So wow, th- those oh, okay. are my and all of you. Have I was I was number one. one for a while. I was tracking that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I rewatched um, all of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings films with my dad, and that's what how he leapfrogged you there. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Mr. Merrick, you're on my hit list now. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I have no idea what our next segment is. Somebody enlighten me. Uh, marvelous Cinematour, I think. Yeah. How marvelous is the Cinematour? So today, uh, since we skipped the Cinematour with our last guested episode, I'll be talking about two films. Um, though I'll be talking about one of them only briefly. Um, because I watched The Eternals and I watched Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, I I think we discussed No Way Home like three different times on the podcast last season uh, Mm. because (laughs) we talked about it on Weekend Review when you saw it, Christian. I think we talked about it again when you saw it, Mitchell. And then I think at some point I talked about it too. And I don't remember why, Hmm. but I did see it for a first time and this was a rewatch. And I think when I first saw it, I was charitable because I saw it in a cinema and I thought, these movies aren't my thing, but I get that this is kind of cool, and I gave it a 3 out of 5. I gave it a 3 out of 5 again this time, um, but I said in my letterbox review that this is the first one of these movies that, while watching it, I have come to the realization that these are movies for literal children, um, because I think everything about the plot of this film is 
so dumb. And it's it's literally <laughs> it's just there it's to get a bunch of cameos of in the room. Um, the conceit Ooh. that Peter is going to develop a a liquid injectable instant <laughs> cure for mental illness is is dumb. It's it's so like Saturday morning cartoon. The plot doesn't matter. The kids just want to see Spider Man punch the bad guy, and. There are some charming enough moments, and I will admit that the direction is a little bit more creative than it was for the previous two MCU Spider-Man films. But, yeah, this one really didn't work outside of cinema for me, uh, due in part to the plot. But also, there's so many <laughs> awkward gaps for <laughs> laughter that the movie would be, like, 5% shorter. If, if they had like actual reasonable pauses between lines there's so many moments especially when the three peters talk where it's like all right hold for laugh and go and it's 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 so awkward to watch outside of a cinema because in the cinema even when people aren't laughing there's still kind of that mood where you're taking it in and the, the gaps don't feel as bizarre but when you're just watching it in your living room it really hits you that you're like, wow, okay, I was meant to laugh there, and nobody laughed. Um, <laughs> so yeah, three out of five, uh, but I, I certainly don't think it's very good. Uh, now Man, time to you talk would about hate the, the Flash so much. What was that? <laughs> you would hate the Flash so much if you oh, think I'm No sure. Way Home is stupid. <laughs> um, okay, now time for the meat and potatoes. Uh, the Eternals. Um I think I'm the only member of this trio that's seen The Eternals. Is that right? That's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it. So, okay, The Eternals was directed by Chloe Zhao, who is a very talented director. Okay. Um, I, I have liked her previous efforts quite a bit, um, and she's made some good films. Uh, but she's... It, it's such a weird choice for her to direct a Marvel film. Because this is a woman who directs entirely naturally lit films about, like, people living in poverty uh, that are basically, like, pseudo-documentaries, except there's one actor and she's in the midst of, like, real people who are homeless or living in vans or something. And it's like, why did you take this director and give her all the money in the world to make this movie? Because this is so long... And it's clearly they're trying to do something different. And I, I will applaud them to a certain extent because it is something different. Um, <laughs> the issue is that it's not something good different. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it has a really talented cast and a really talented director. And it doesn't look terrible. But th the script is just so dull and repetitive <laughs> I, I, I laid out the structure in detail in my letterboxd review so, but I will, I will recount, recount it now for you uh, the structure of this film is uh, some people who are apparently immortal talk to each other then they go to a new location and find a new person who is occasionally uh, uh, apparently immortal uh, then they get attacked by multicolored alien animals um, <laughs> one of the characters might die then they go to another new location they meet another person who is apparently immortal. They talk for a while. They get attacked by multicolored animals, and one of them may die. <laughs> then they go to another new location and just rinse, repeat over and over and over again. And it, it's so dull. And and I, 
watching it, I felt like I was I was having a dream because it was like <laughs> I, I, the MCU is not something I like, but they at least feel like movies that somebody might enjoy, and they feel like movies that were made for somebody. They might not have been made for somebody who's especially like picky about their film choices, but they feel like they were made for somebody to go, whoa, Captain America. <laughs> the Eternals feels like yeah. a movie I made up in my head and had a weird dream about that didn't really have a plot. Um, <laughs> it's it's by far, I think, the... Oh, I'm not, I, I can't call it the worst of these. I do think... Black Buddha was a worst film, a worst film, but it's mm -hmm. definitely the most boring, um, and it's it's only just above Black Widow because I gave this a two instead of a one, because uh, <laughs> I'm at least gonna give this some credit for trying something, um, and I again I, I talked to Christian about this yesterday. I don't think I can judge this too much on its ending because it's pretty clear that it's meant to be continued at some point. But the fact that none of the future MCU installments have even paid reference to the ending of this film <laughs> seems to me like they're trying to sweep it under the rug real quick. Um, I don't feel bad about spoiling this because this movie is over a year old at this point, or maybe almost a year. I think over a year. Um, I think over. But basically, yeah. the ending of this film, an enormous planet-sized creature is making its way out of the earth like it's hatching like a chicken out of an egg and then it gets <laughs> turned to stone so at the end of this at the end of this movie there's an enormous head and two hands of a gigantic like an impossibly huge creature just sticking out of the earth the, the end of this movie essentially there is a new continent on planet earth and they have not made any reference to this whatsoever <laughs> in any of the other Marvel films since its release and I think if there's any indication of this movie just being a multi-million dollar fart in the wind it's that <laughs> when even Kevin Feige the biggest nerd on planet earth who will forgive like anything as long as you know it'll be a comic reference in his movie won't pay reference to the end of your film oh buddy I mean they, uh, they brought Tim Blake Nelson's leader back, and they're not even going to acknowledge the <laughs> continent-sized monster sticking out of the earth. Um, yeah, this ship is going down, and um, you know I'm I'm going to bail until we hit Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. What is 3. a Red Hulk? But, but we, when, when we hit Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, this I'm getting in a lifeboat. Uh, women and children be damned. <laughs> So uh, two out of five for the Eternals. Uh, time to move on. <laughs> does Kumail does Kumail Nanjani ever reference the movie title where he's like, "Well, I guess we've come together and realized we are the Eternals." No, Kumail <laughs> Nanjiani like isn't even in the climax. Uh, oh, I heard that. That's yeah. well. Then what's the point? Uh, yeah, so really. they assemble a what's team, the and then a member <laughs> of the team becomes like a semi-villain, and then Kumail Nanjiani oh. like agrees with him. But he's like, hey, don't oh. beat us up, though. So there's a little fight before the climax. And then Kumail Nanjiani just goes, I abstain from this conflict and leaves. <laughs> 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 and he doesn't appear in the climax at all. The The team, Why? like the team, I think is just like I think there's like eight or nine Eternals, but only like four of them 
have anything to do with the climax of the movie. So by the climax, by like the peak of the action, you can't help but look around and think, well, what did we spend two and a half hours meeting all of these people for when only half of them <laughs> have anything to do with the conclusion? Um, uh, yeah, I saw this movie like two <laughs> weeks ago and I still have a lot of, a lot of thoughts about it. But we, we should move on because we're almost hitting an hour. Oh, yeah. Right on. Um, okay, what's... what? Uh, run down. Okay, yes. Yeah. yeah. Run the track. This is where we... Uh, We're going to give Christian... Huh? This is where we take over the podcast from Christian for yes. a while. Oh, yeah. Yes. Wrenching it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, am I timing or are you, Mitchell? <laughs> You'll okay. time it. Are you going to exactly. start? I'll start. Okay. I'll start the run and you'll do the down. All right. <laughs> Stay gold, pony boy, in uh, three, <laughs> two, it sounded just like one. <laughs> Stevie Wonder. Four out of five. Not liking little kids. Two out of five. When you see what's hanging. Three out of five. Offering soft drinks. Four out of five. Fair fight ain't rough. Three out of five. Train trauma. Three out of five. Mustangs and Madras. Three out of five. Patrick Swayze trauma. Four out of five. Switchblade haircuts. Four out of five. Animal acting. Four out of five. Quoting Robert Frost. Five out of five. Blondie man. Four out of five. Heroic family reunion. Three out of five. Tom Cruise scenes. Four out of five. Rob Lowe scenes. Four out of five. Cake beer combo. Three out of five. <laughs> Gorilla cookies. Three out of five. Ready copies of Gone with the Wind. Three out of five. Rainy fight choreography. Four out of five. Staying gold. Four out of five. All right. And that is our list complete with one Ooh. second to spare. All right. Wow. Nice. Clean. And my first five, I think, uh, given on the rundown, if I'm recalling correctly. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. All right. Sparing. Okay. Well, I think <laughs> had a lot of good Garagus sound bites today between uh, women and children be damned and <laughs> we are the age to have shootouts with the police or whatever the other one was. <laughs> um, That's really what this is all well, about. Well, before yeah. I dig Take myself <laughs> a deeper hole, um, Mitchell, would you like to, to preview what we'll be talking about next time? <laughs> Would I like to preview <laughs> what's next, Zach? Yes, would you? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the anticipation is insane, okay? Tom McGrath is the greatest director of all time. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Boss Baby, but this is the progenitor to every animated film that's funny, okay? Megamind. <laughs> We're doing Megamind. <laughs> The, the 2010 <laughs> Paramount, uh, the 300 million in the box office. Wow. <laughs> Will Ferrell, <laughs> Tina Fey, Jonah Hill, David Cross, Brad Pitt. Everybody's in this. Okay. <laughs> this is the greatest triumph of humanity pre-COVID. <laughs> and that's a fact. Okay. You know what? I will say, I think... Thinking back, Megamind may have been the first film that I saw an ad for in the cinema and immediately upon walking out went, I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is probably going to be our silliest pocket episode, though. 
Yeah, okay. that's going to be great. Um, we'll oh. find out. Tune in next time, next week yeah. or whatever. Don't <laughs> miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been another Cookie Pocket. Yay! Yeah. Bye. Stay gold. <laughs>